0: Welcome to episode 15 of Craftish. I'm Vicki Howell. This episode is sponsored by Maker's Mercantile. Maker's Mercantile is a space for fueling your creativity and inspiring you to make with any medium you feel passionate about. Their online shop carries supplies for sewing, weaving, knitting, crochet, and dyeing, plus curated gifts, books, craft storage, apparel, and more. You can check out makersmercantile.com for more info, but make sure you stay tuned for the end of this show for a special deal from them for you knitters out there. This week on the show is designer, instructor, yarn dyer, and author of several books, including Knitting Ephemera, a compendium of articles useful and otherwise for the edification and amusement of the hand knitter, Carol Silkowski. Recently, we sat down to talk knitting factoids, about how her craft has led her to some of her closest friends, and about her parallel journeys as both an attorney and artist. Here's Carol now. Carol, thank you so much for coming on and being a guest on Craftish. My pleasure. I am love the show, and I'm glad to be here. So, I was... It's funny, I we want to talk about your book and we will definitely get into knitting ephemera but it, it's funny right before i scheduled you for an interview you you know you wrote this book of of facts and articles i heard a totally unrelated interview with Jody Foster on Nerdist and in it she said how she's completely sort of incapable of retaining facts and which is really funny because she went to Yale, and and she verbalized something that I had never verbalized for myself and that she can... She, so she said she took all writing courses so that she would never have to remember actual facts. And I'd never heard somebody put it into words before because that's exactly how I am. I can sort of bowl my way through anything, but recalling actual facts seems to be a talent that I just just do not have. And you... My friends seem to be the exact opposite. And you've created this collection that is nothing but facts. And I feel like I would need to carry it around with me because it's got all these great like party trick, you know, sort of facts in it. But I would never be able to recall them. Have you, has this always been sort of a gift for you to just sort of retain facts and interesting tidbits? Yes. And I'm sure my children
1: could testify as to the number of Bizarre little factoids that, you know, I've told them about things over the years. It actually seems to be hereditary. Um, My father was the exact same way. And I've told people that he uh, tried out for Jeopardy in either the late 60s or early 70s and passed the audition because he always had little tidbits about this or that. He was like a World War II buff and could tell you anything about planes and the bombs and the battles. And um, And my son, who's 14 now, is also has that piece of him, that that little interest in the factoid. So he does the same thing. He'll tell us at lunch, you know. Some little statistic uh, about you know this is the first time that our great middle school
0: has had seven sets of twins at the same time, so I think it's definitely just that's genetic. That's fascinating. So is that so? That's something good. So your your father is a teacher, correct? He was, yes. So was trivia part of your daily life? I mean, I it sounds like it is now as an adult with your own children. If he's but but as you grew up. Obviously, if your father's, you know, auditioning for Jeopardy, he's, he's interested. But is he bringing that into the way that he has conversations with you as, as a child?
1: Definitely. And um, my dad was a huge proponent of education and uh, believed that any kid could do whatever that kid wanted to do. And one nice thing for me was that he was very encouraging with me never ever would say, oh, just be a teacher, you know, not that there's anything wrong with being a teacher. But just at the time, that was what was there. were Only if you know, people were expected to do things. And he would say, you don't have to be a nurse, be the doctor, you know, don't play princess, be the king. And he, he always talked to us like we were adults, I think, because he just felt like we had the capacity to engage with him on that level. And he, I think, just remembered these things and found them interesting and wanted to share them with us.
0: Was your dad creative at all?
1: Yes, it's kind of interesting. My, um, my dad started a small business when I was in grade school, and it made educational film strips for schools to use in the classroom. Um, He was a science teacher and really passionate about it. So it started out with things like demonstrating labs, but then it kind of expanded more, and he um, started doing sets of film strips that would accompany particular textbooks. And keeping in mind at the time that there was no Internet, there weren't videos or DVDs, we had film strips. And he would create these film strips that went along with, with a particular topic, you know, one chapter, one film strip. And um, it was a great way to review for a test. It was a really brilliant way for different kinds of learners to get access to that information. So, if you're not a verbal learner and books are hard for you to absorb from, you could see these words and see these concepts illustrated. And so, I think, yeah, I, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily described him in that way at first thought, but. Yes, he definitely was creative.
0: I mean, some of the best teachers, I'm, I'm also the daughter of a teacher. My mom's a teacher. And I think that some of the best educators are creative in the way that children don't all learn in the same way. So to be effective, you have to find different ways to reach that child and to get the information to settle, don't you think?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, he would do things like if they were talking about chemical molecules, you know, he would bring in chess, uh, marshmallows and toothpicks and make little molecules, you know. And so, yeah, I think that that you're right, that the best teachers can a- a- appeal to a lot of different kinds of learners. And I think they also are really good at getting into the head of the student,
0: where they are, how to reach them in particular to, to- you grew up and did not become that princess, you became a lawyer, but, all, I did. <laughs> but also a designer, and even though you tend to go towards the side of working with finer weights and more intricate designs, designing is creative, and being an attorney is inherently analytical, how, how have those paths crossed for you? Are those two completely separate sides of the coin for you, of your own sort of personality coin? Or is there a gray area where the two meet? I, I was born in March,
1: and I often say that I am the classic Pisces, which is two fish swimming in different directions. Um, so yes, law school taught me how to analyze things, how to approach them very rationally and logically. Um, at the same time, I think you'd be surprised at how much opportunity there can be for creativity in the law. Um, and I found that at certain times I would think, well, well, what if we did this? Or why can't we do this? Or wait, maybe we should do that. So I do think I tried. It's just not a kind of field where um, it's it's all more mental gymnastics in terms of creativity. Um, when my oldest was born I I was going to go back to work part-time and it didn't work out and I ended up home and I had been knitting for fun and that was kind of when I really started to throw myself into it and I really had to kind of come to the realization that I had a creative side because I would not necessarily have thought of myself that way so that's I mean, not something remember- that
0: you like as a child your your mom wasn't sticking needles in your hand or you or you weren't drawing or anything creative just as a kid well
1: I I did a lot of crafty stuff. It's true. Um, So maybe I just didn't have that in my Mm self-perception. You know, maybe I was more (laughs) creative than I realized. And then um, I started messing around with knitting. And like I think many designers probably could tell you, you start making people's patterns. And then all of a sudden, the more you learn about knitting, you start to say what if or what. why was this done this way? Well, what this? I like this, but I think I'd like it more if I added this. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of led me and gave when those things worked out well, it gave me the confidence to start actually um, creating things on my own. I also firmly believe that creativity is a muscle that needs to be exercised. And the more that you do creative things, the more ideas come to you.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that also. You know, It's interesting what you said about self-perception, that people may not – if you ask a lot of people if they consider themselves creative, often, very often, they say no. But then if you ask them specifically, did you do X, do you do Y, do you do Z, they'll say, oh, yeah, but I didn't really consider that being part of my creative self. I think a lot of it is just perception that there's... In the same way that I think, you know, as a kid when I grew up, I thought if you went to art school, you had to be a painter. I had no idea there were all of these other realms. I feel like in just sort of the daily zeitgeist of creativity, people think that you have to be a professional craftsperson to be creative.
1: Yes, I think that's definitely true. Um, The
0: word ephemera from your book, Knitting Ephemera, means a collection of things thought to have only fleeting popularity, um, but when preserved, often proved to be quite valuable. And I, I couldn't help but notice the parallel between that and, and the actual act and hobby of knitting itself. Um, I feel like there's an ebb and flow of whether or not knitting is considered quote-unquote acceptable among the feminist community or whether or not it is on trend or off trend um, or whether or not it has value in the arts and craft community or not. Was that intentional when you were naming it? Um, I think I really felt like
1: I wanted the the title to capture the idea that there was all of this lore and knowledge and stories that were floating around out there and if if none, no one wrote them down they'd be lost. You know, they're even more temporary than a ticket stub because they're stuff that, you know, people remember and then when they die, they're not there anymore. Or when they forget, no one can tell that story again. So I think I saw of it as sort of a way to capture some things, in a sense making them less ephemeral.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you, and you've sort of collected these these bits of trivia over years of time. And, and sometimes you were researching, obviously, but other times it would just be in conversation or as you were writing articles for magazines. At, at that time when you found, in that case, if you found a tidbit, were you writing them down or were you just sort of mentally collecting all of them uh, for the future?
1: Uh, you know, I really... I didn't anticipate writing this book. I did find those little stories and anecdotes fascinating and kind of made a mental note of them. And um, it seemed like every time I would work on a different article or a different project or read a different book or go to a convention and, and, you know, hang out with other teachers, I would hear some little tidbit that was interesting. And I always felt like there was something there, but I didn't know exactly what. And it wasn't until I talked to Trisha Malcolm one day that she had a vision when I explained. I said, there's all this stuff and I it's it's interesting. And, you know, every time I do an article, I find a new story about some small company and how they added to the industry or some little factoid about, you know, the Earl of Cardigan. And she, she instantly had a vision for the book. And once – once she and I hashed that out, then I did start keeping track of things and actually going and looking for things. Um, and I kind of went back and looked over at my different articles and notes over the years to see if there was anything in there that, you know, I could mine from, but I mean, I could go on forever and ever. I just seems there's so much interesting stuff out there and, um, and people are now starting to, to offer it up to me, which is kind of fun too. (laughs)
0: Trisha Malcolm, just as a side note, is the editorial director of Vogue Knitting um, and Six and Spring Books who put out your book, just as a side note. Um, can we talk about – I want to go back to, to talking about teaching and about that pathway, but can we talk a bit about the size font in, in your book? You have so much information in here, and it is – it's got to be, what, like a 10 font? Like how – did, did you have so much information that, that you had to keep scaling it down further and further just to pack it in? Um,
1: I think probably the desire to keep the book its current size was a function because we really wanted it to be a book that was not the size of a traditional pattern book that could be slipped into a bag, even a purse, and carried along for fun. Right. Um and you know, honestly, I didn't really think about it all because you know I turned fifty and now I need glasses to read anything. <laughs> so um, I opened it up. I was like, careful oh the my layout. goodness!" You know, I wasn't sure how it was going to turn out. Are
0: you still laughing? No, I just was like, when I opened it up first, I was like, you know, "Oh my I, I, goodness! <laughs> wow! All right, let's I... do this. We're in it." <laughs> Like there's no fluff around it. There's no like here's one one like you know a lot of coffee table books which this this absolutely could be, um, but it's got it's also got it's of course got so much more information. Would have like a fact on a page and then some kind of you know sketch or something. A and full you, bleed photo. Absolutely. <laughs> and you've got every like the equivalent of sort of writing in the side bars like with you know I can just imagine you actually putting this together and scribbling something here and adding something there and it's like it's like action-packed from cover to cover
1: yeah I think some of the things that we were when we talked about what we you know what I wanted it to look like to the extent that I could you know sometimes it's hard to imagine it in the abstract but I thought about Victorian knitting books and I thought about the Farmer's Almanac yeah. And how you know that's a very small, concise book with tons of information jammed in there, um, and and yeah, I wanted I wanted people I wanted the focus to be on the information definitely and and what it brings to the table rather than pictures and so on and so forth.
0: You've also written keeping that
1: kind of Victorian, right?
0: Right, the Victorian look. You've also written. Many design books, which is a very, very different process. We talk, we talk us through a bit how you approached, you know, a book of, of trivia versus how you approach books that are filled with um, both how to knitting tutorials and actual garment designs.
1: Sure. Um, knitting ephemera was really very loose in the sense that I just kind of turned myself loose to gather and then. I would just gather things, sometimes do some research. I kept little ongoing spreadsheets with them, and um, whenever I would just come up with something, I'd throw it in the mix. And the idea was definitely that this was not going to be organized by any kind of topic, or or it was going to be just sort of loosey-goosey, hodgepodge of interesting information. So that made it so easy. and. Um, you know, I already had a fair bit of material to start with. I would just sort of randomly go down alleys on the Internet. I would go to libraries and just look for stuff that they had in their card catalog. I emailed people in the industry and asked them for little bits of information. Friends of mine, you know, I have one good friend, Elizabeth, who has a brain like mine. And she always um, was willing to throw out a little tidbit that I hadn't known about before Um So that kind of just flowed very naturally. With the pattern books, I've always wanted to – there are a lot of very pretty pattern books out there. And I really consciously wanted my pattern books to do a little more to focus on something, some specific either method of knitting or type of yarn and provide knitters with – with technical information on how to use it and then use the patterns, not just as here's a pretty collection of things made in that kind of yarn, but um, here this, this, this shows you why doing such and such will help, you know, as actual exhibits of the topics we talk about in the beginning. So my other books were definitely, there was an idea there, a very specific idea, whether it was what can you make with sock yarn other than socks or, how can you use lace weight yarn in an untraditional way? Um, and my next book, it talks about self-striping yarns, why they do what they do and how you can make the best of them. And that was the starting point. And then trying to figure out what if, – if a knitter wanted to just throw themselves into this, what would they need to know? And then reaching out to people in the design world um, and coming up with some of my own designs that would illustrate the principles that we talk about.
0: So it sounds like really – Conveying information is at the the heart and soul of, of most of what you do.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a fair description. I like um, I do like that people come up to me sometimes and they'll say, "I have sock yarn studio, and the patterns are great." But it's it's always going to stay on my bookshelf because of that front section because I learned so much from it, and that's what I think is really satisfying is being able to give knitters the understanding and the tools that they need to be better in control of their knitting, to do what they want with their knitting, whatever it happens to be, to understand why things happen so they can avoid them if they want, to fix things that are jarring to their eyes. And and I think when you know more about what you're doing and why it happens, you have more fun.
0: Right. What is it that you get out of, or that you hope to get out of teaching when you're teaching knitting or dyeing or, you know, any of your courses, and... and what is it that you hope that your students leave the room with?
1: Um, I, When I'm teaching, I really want my students to have fun. Sometimes people come in and it's almost like they're waiting for the death march to baton That we're going to go through all these stitches and we're going to get them done. And I try to keep my classes a little bit more loose than that. I try to adapt them to the level of the people, the knitting level of the people in them. And, um, and that can be a really big challenge, you know, when someone comes to take a lace class and they don't know how to purl. Um, but I also like to try to make them feel confident and to give them things that they can take home and use in their own knitting that will make them happy. Because really, I mean, we do this for a lot of reasons, but essentially we do it because we like it and it pleases us. And, and I hope knitters, you know, walk away from my classes feeling like they learn some things, but they also gain some confidence in their instincts because every knitter has instincts that are often quite good
0: you have gone back to being an attorney but you still continue to write books write articles for vogue um which i want to talk about a bit more about but but i'm, I'm curious you must also get something from the students back because you probably wouldn't necessarily have to continue Doing the schlep that is being a knitting teacher, I talked about this with Clara Parks uh, um, for an episode of this podcast, and she was talking about how you know every show like these national you know knitting treasures are going with their suitcase, like you know, rolling their suitcase, their rickety suitcase with all of their samples and unloading and this and they you know and maybe paying for their hotel room and and there's a whole schlep around it. Like there's it's not a lot of glamour, so there is if you don't have to teach but choose to teach you must be getting something from the students just as they are gaining something from you
1: absolutely I mean one of the things is you you can get jaded when you do it a long time and when you start to see the enthusiasm of someone who's just starting that's amazing I love to see when someone's you can sometimes literally see the light bulb go on over someone's head when they pick something up and it's just exciting to be able to share that with them um, I find that my students often throw... We will talk about, you know, well, you could use this here and you could put this edging on there and people will just start to... They get throw out ideas and they say, oh, this would be good for such and such. And I, so there's definitely kind of a creative rush that you get in the sense that, you know, they may offer up these ideas that are incredibly interesting and provocative and helpful. So there's that. And I have to say that for me... One of the most important reasons I do this is because of the people. I have made the dearest, most amazing friends through doing this, and I don't want them ever to not be part of my life. And every time we go to a show together, even if we teach all day and only see each other for drinks at night, one of us comes in late and leaves early, whatever, we, we touch base. And that sense of community, people talk about it a lot, but it's definitely true, um, is, is critically important to me.
0: I feel like community within the knitting, crochet, and just overall craft world is really sort of like the very foundation of the entire industry. I mean, not only for non, you know, obviously for professional uh, professionals, we need those people. They're the people that are coming to the classes and buying the yarn and buying the patterns. But because this is an oral tradition, knitting specifically, crochet specifically, it, it's very, like, essence began with that community, with talking to each other, with being around each other. And I feel like even now in this, it's sort of like that to the umpth degree now because we can talk to each other around the world in real time, at all times, sharing pictures and, and swapping stories that, if anything, communities become more and not less important during the technological age.
1: I agree. I think the Internet in many ways was the best thing that ever happened to knitting. Um, In some ways, maybe the worst to to the knitting industry, but um, just from a standpoint of the economy. But um, yeah, yeah, I think it it creates communities where none were able to exist before. And that's a very exciting thing for me. I have met people. I have a dear friend who lives in Canada, Canada, who I rarely see in real life but is one of my best friends and we collaborate, you know, over the internet. And I've had people who've read my blog and I've met in real life and they've become friends. And if I'm doing a show in California, they will come and see me even if they can't go to the show. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that's just pretty amazing and just the shuffling of information back and forth too. That. I'm Pinterest just think about spending an hour on Pinterest and how the creative juices and you just go wild when you see that you know beautiful things interesting things unusual ways of doing things so yeah I think the community is always going to be a part of this and that's the thing that when everyone's despairing that you know knitting's dead and only little old ladies do it I think that's the thing they don't understand is that you know we've got a vibrant sense of community that's still developing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, to speak to your point about how the Internet has been a little bit sort of hurtful to the knitting industry as well is something that we're going to all work out. A lot of that has to do with publishing rights and with with free content. And I think, you know, I think it's the same in the music world and really in in all creative worlds is just trying to figure out that fine balance of monetization and realization. Um, And we're still in the infancy stages, really, of the Internet. You know, I I, I say this all the time. If you think about it, we're really only 20 years into it. Like when, you know, in the grand scheme of Internet land, this is going to seem like nothing.
1: Yeah, and it's true that this is um, the business challenges are not just craft based. They, They, you know, every business in the world is facing well. If you can order this online, why do you need to have a bricks and mortar store? And, you know, I think that's another thing that people are working out. And we're starting to see, you know, people talked about at the end of the indie bookstore, Amazon was going to kill the bookstore. Well, now all of a sudden what we're seeing is there's a revival in indie bookstores because people have missed them.
0: Based on the community aspect. Yeah, based on the community
1: aspect, being able to look at the book and look at the pages. And if you're a weirdo like me, smell the binding. And, um, yeah, you know, I think that people, in some respects, when it takes something away, people realize it's important and replace it. So it's not all doom and gloom.
0: And I truly believe um, that, and the same goes with yarn stores, that we can use the two to help each other. If you're on a virtual platform, whether it's an online course or a podcast or, a, you know, a thread on Ravelry, you can absolutely say, "Oh yes, you can buy this at soandso.com," but if you need any help at all, or if you actually want to touch and feel it, or if you actually, you know, want to be with human beings, please go to your local <laughs> yarn store. That's what they're there for. Like, go be there, be a part of your physical community and not just your virtual community. And then you're going to reach people that you would pro- you wouldn't be able to reach just walking down the street telling people this, right? So your voice is larger. You just have to use it. It's that whole like think globally, act locally thing, it very much applies to the two, like the brick and mortar versus the virtual world. We just got to figure it out.
1: Right, right. And we have to train people, I think, to think that way too.
0: Yeah. I mean we're all kind of pioneering how this is going to work. Yep. Something I think the internet is gave to both of us um, is not only that community that we were just talking about, but a creative outlet after we, or just an, just an, a human outlet, after we both had children. We both are mothers of three. We both stopped our careers to stay home with our children, at least for some of the time. And we both started websites or blogs or whatever. They weren't called blogs when I started mine, but um, to have something else besides motherhood and 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 that in no way is to insinuate that motherhood is not enough but I think that we as women can benefit from exploring as many avenues of ourself as possible and then in turn that makes us stronger mothers talk to me a little bit about how your blog started and where the need to reach out to that community and express that creativity came from after becoming a mom. Um,
1: yeah, I would. The Internet kind of started to really hit when my kids were young. And so I started I mean, I was a member of the knit list for a while, a really old. Right. And that group, was back. But, that would have
0: been what, like 2001, 2002, when knit list was yeah, really earlier. Hot? Yeah. Yeah. Mm hmm. And how, old is, and how old is your oldest child? 18.
1: Okay. All right. I, I, he was born in 98. So that was when um, I was messing around with some stuff a little bit before then, but not so I didn't have as much time as I did then. So, um, yeah, it would have been, you know, the late 90s, early, early aughts. And I just discovered these things called blogs that I had no idea what they were until I stumbled across them. And I don't know if you remember, there was one called Dangerous Chunky. No, Do you I
0: don't
1: think blog? I knew that one. Uh-uh. Oh, dangerous Chunky, where are you? I don't Sign know. I'm email. writing, I'm writing it down now. Yeah. Anyway, um, that, I remember very distinctly that being one of the first ones that I read. Um, and then I kind of hooked in with uh, Joe Wilcox, Queer Joe's knitting blog. I remember that one. And then um, that one's still going strong. And then um, the knitting curmudgeon. Yeah. And who we lost actually earlier this year she passed away um earlier this year and then I'm trying to think of the other blogs that were big at the time there there were a variety of them and it was just amazing to me that there were other people in the world who were as interested in knitting as I was and wanted to talk about it as much as I did and um where did your interest from knitting
0: come from because I I heard, uh, I think it was on the yarn thing podcast that you said that you learned to knit from your mom in the seventies, but, and this happened to me as well, but you, it didn't really take, and you came back to it as an adult. So when did that happen?
1: Yeah. My mom taught me, um, in the seventies, you know, I made like some harvest gold wind tuck scarves and garter stitch. You know, I think it was like a snow day from school. I was kind of bored, um, We did do sort of crafty things in our house. Like my mom went through that phase in the 70s where she painted ceramics. I don't know if you remember that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And then you'd get them baked. And, you know, she noodled around with macrame for a little while. And um, we did stitching, like embroidery and cross-stitch and stuff. But nothing really, you know, it was always just noodling around. And then um, when I was in law school was when I first started to really pick knitting back up as a sort of stress relief mechanism. And a friend of mine who also knit took me to a knitting shop in Ann Arbor. And I remember we bought stuff for a lopi sweater for me to do. Um, and that was when I first started to become more intrigued by it. And then when I got my, you know, when I got out of school and got working um, as an associate at a big law firm, Um, it was definitely a stress relief thing. It was definitely something that um, it was a kind of an antidote to doing intellectual stuff all day rather than anything tactile or creative emotional. So Mm -hmm. I started doing it then and that was when I just became obsessed with it. I remember going and seeing a Debbie Bliss book in the bookstore. It was like a Borders and buying it and just being amazed because I just did not know that knitting books that beautiful existed and so i decided that i wanted to be able to knit beautiful things like the ones that were in that book yeah
0: i think the first sweater i knit baby sweater i knit was from a from a debbie bliss book as well yeah
1: and so i I found a local yarn shop near my office so then i started going there you know and then it just kind of kept going from from that point
0: okay so at that point at so at some point you start Black Bunny Fibers. Talk us through that.
1: Um, I've been blogging for several years, and my
0: son, who was at that point around maybe eight, were you blogging about knitting only, or were you? I was just talking to um, Crafty Chica Kathy Connemario on the episode the last week, and she was talking about how we were all like OG uh, mommy bloggers, <laughs> but they didn't call them that then. Um, but by I de- did I did. By default, yeah, we did talk about our kids. I mean, it just we happened. totally talked about yeah. our
1: kids, and and my my plug readers always got a huge kick out of the stories about my kids because um, my daughter was just she still is she's absolutely hilarious and she would do things like say to me, "Mom, you don't know how to love," <laughs> and I would tell these stories <laughs> and people would be like, like, oh at, my what, God.
0: like at what age?" seven
1: six something <laughs> like that she's wow. quite young
0: so what do you say to that
1: i said well i obviously do or i would have treated you to the gypsies which i'm sorry that's an offensive word i don't want to use it but we, we used it back then in ignorance
0: it's <laughs> gypsies offensive
1: i think it might be i think we're supposed to say roma now
0: I always say Irish gypsy, like my mom has a bit of the Irish gypsy in her, meaning like, like the, the tra- travelers. No, the psychic ability. Like I always, oh. use, I always use it for like to me, it's kind of a compliment. But I get it now, so, so yeah. That so. Was something my mom said. You know, we're sell you gypsies. Oh, I see. Yeah, well, that would I guess that would be less, uh, less of a compliment. Positive. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so so you would tell stories about your your kids. Yeah, and people loved them. I used to call my oldest
1: kid, I just gave him a, like a fake name for privacy called, I used to call him Elvis. Mm-hmm. And I still have people come up to me and say, I think it's really cool that you named your kid Elvis. And I'm like, Aww. no, I'm not that cool, actually. <laughs> I was trying to protect his privacy. But he, at one point, he was a very um, busy kid. He always had to be doing something, looking at something, trying something. And so... Um, we decided to try Kool-Aid dyeing. And I taught him how to knit. And he he actually could manage it pretty well. And so we decided we would Kool-Aid dye some yarn and then he would knit it. So um I did pictures and showed them on my blog. And um it was actually kind of fun. People were like, wow, you you know, you seem to have a natural ability for that. You should keep doing it. And so I would just, you know, just noodle around with it a little more and, you know, knit something for myself. And then people started saying on my blog, oh, my God, you should sell that. I would totally buy your stuff. So I started to look into, a, you know, a little more professional, professional bases and and professional dyes and began kind of just experimenting. And um, it all just kind of took on a life of its own.
0: So people... Responded to your dying. you started with Kool-Aid dyeing, and then you you moved into, you must have looked into other methods of dyeing at that point.
1: Yeah, more professional dyes, um, different bases. You know, I really began to sort of study how to do it, and, you know, there's different dyes that are appropriate for different types of fibers and different techniques. And it just coincided with that period where it was this huge um explosion in hand interest in hand dyeing, So people were waiting in line for, you know, an hour and a half, two hours at a fiber show. To I get.
0: remember that at Rhinebeck, right?
1: Rhinebeck, Maryland sheep and wall. Yeah. And it just was nuts. And, you know, I kind of hit right in the beginning of that frenzy and, um, ended up first was selling on eat selling on eBay or Etsy. Um, and then moved to uh, an Artfire platform, which is a little less... Etsy kind of got a little big and a little out of control with um, actually non-handmade items being sold. Right. So um, I switched over to Artfire, and um, that's where I am now. And I also... St- you know, I'm, I'm keenly aware of how difficult it is for local yarn shops, so I also do work with some local yarn shops. Um, there's one in Center City, Philadelphia, called Loop, and... I send yarn to him and uh, there's a s- store in Newark, Delaware called Stitches with Style who usually carry it and then my friend Brooke has the Kirkwood Knittery so I try to send her yarn too because I know how difficult it is when your customers are looking at stuff online and you know the price structure makes it difficult to offer so yeah. I do try to work with a small number of local shops as well.
0: I've actually spoken to um, a few shop owners who have said that Lately and probably for that very reason, you know, because you can get most things online that they're actually looking way like more for way more local locally dyed or spun fibers than they are larger brands, because that's what their customers are coming into the store to look for. Those little like nuggets, those little like balls of special. Um, yes, so th- I
1: think that's true. Totally true. And I think that um, that. Local always has a, a kind of an appeal because it becomes the souvenir that you take. You know, oh, you're right. visiting a country and instead of buying, you know, I don't know what, a t-shirt. It's, it's you like, like a travel towel art. or like, whatever, like the embroidered. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah um, and I also yeah. think that I've noticed in my own customer base, they are absolutely fascinated with what's new. Um, new base. They... It, boom, sales, yeah. that, that there's that's definitely such great this news
0: for artisans. It's really great news for indie people, you know, everybody, you know, we talk often about how, you know, big business makes it difficult for indie business. But right now I think there's like, if you really focus on your niche that you, you have kind of a one up um, if you're doing something unique and special, because people are going to come to you just for that.
1: Right. Yeah, we, uh, a couple of years ago, I found a mill that made me a base, and they used, of all things, white Samoa dog hair in the blend. Really? And it sounds, yeah, and it sounds crazy, but um, it was beautifully yarn, it was beautifully soft, and it did not smell like wet dog, which is what everyone wanted to know. And I did a limited run of that, and that was just boom, people bought that because it was, you know, unique and you didn't see it every day. So it's that kind of stuff that I think people are really interested in. And I can see that local yarn shops, too, if everyone can buy the same big brands, either in every shop or online, what they're saying is, you know, what do you have that I can't find everywhere else? What's unique to you?
0: When you're dyeing or designing or knitting or writing, are those all filling the same creative space for you or are they do they feel, does it feel different to you? Do you feel like you're nurturing a different part of yourself creatively with each of those creative avenues?
1: Definitely different. And I, I know this because sometimes in the, I'm in the mood to do one specific thing, but not another. Um.
0: Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think, go ahead. Do you have, well, do you have any rituals to shift from, from, well, I mean, I would think that, just even having to switch from the work that you do as an, uh, an attorney since you're doing all of this at one time and then you have to switch over to either dying or designing or whatever that there's got to be like almost like a switch or a shift do you have any rituals is it like do you have music do you have, like a special tea is there any something that you can do to sort of shift yourself into getting in the mood to do whatever it is that you need or want to do creatively at that point um,
1: one thing that's nice is I take the train in and out of work. And so the train ride home is the really nice transition. You know, it actually takes me out of the office, gives me 20 minutes to sort of just chill and um, is like kind of a defined break between the two. But um, yeah, I don't really, I, I don't really have any rituals per se. I just kind of look around and I have like little checklists of what stuff that has to be done by a certain time. And I just kind of feel like, eh, what am I in the mood to do right now?
0: And it just, con- it just comes to you then?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I just kind of do what I feel like doing. Because <laughs> the thing, you know, there's, there's never any end to things I could do if I wanted. So, um, you know, if I don't have a deadline and have to work on a specific thing, I can always like, well, I'll try this or, you know.
0: Do you have any challenges balancing all of that along with being a parent and a wife? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's,
1: The nice thing is that a lot of the fiber stuff takes place in my house, you know, the dyeing and the knitting and the writing I can do from home. So that means that I'm around and my kids are a little older now. So they're spending less time with us and more time with their friends. But I really feel like presence is important, too. So absolutely. but I think no matter what, no matter what you do, there's always going to be you always are going to have to struggle to find a balance and it's going to be different for everybody.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it, in a lot of ways, we're very fortunate to have careers or parts of careers where we have that flexibility, even though it can be a little stressful to figure out the balance. But at the same time, we are physically present, um, you know, in, in a way that you and I have both chosen to be, which is not to say that that is for everyone um, as far as parenting goes, but I definitely feel like it's it's a gift in many ways to be able to sort of make that work in the way that we want it to, even when it is a struggle. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah,
1: especially when they were younger. Um, you know, when kids get older, they get more self-sufficient, but yeah, just being able to be around there for them has been great, and, um, you know, that was really... I don't regret that ever, you know, that path that I took where I left the traditional career path and kind of went out and found my own different way.
0: Well, Carol, it has been so nice to chat with you today and to hear about knitting ephemera and about your many, many, (laughs) the many facets of your career. Thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Carol's books, hand-dyed yarns, and class info can be found on her website. Her latest book, Knitting Ephemera, is available now at your local yarn store and on Amazon. For more info, links, and photos of some of her projects, please check out this episode's show notes page at vickihowellcom craftish. Thanks again to our sponsor, Makers Mercantile, who would like to celebrate podcast guest and friend, Carol Sikoski, on her upcoming book, Self-Striping Yarn Studio. They'd like to do so by giving craftish listeners a special discount. So if you buy any two skeins of fingering weight yarn, you'll get an additional skein at 50% off. So that's buy two, get one at 50% off at makersmercantile.com. All you'll need to do is use the code SUMMER16SOCKS and they will do you right. Craftish is a Campbell production. It is produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. We're taking the next two weeks off from full episodes, but we will have an extra short next week. It's the audio portion of a video interview I did for my husband's uh, film site, Smells Like Screen Spirit, way back at uh, South by Southwest Film Festival in March. It was with the co-directors of Yarn the Movie, which just recently debuted in New York at the IFC. That'll go live next Tuesday. Then we'll be back with regular full-size episodes on July 19th. Until then, take a little time to continue the conversation about creativity. Breathe in, craft out. Bye!